0: morning sovereign grace so great to see you all here this morning and in case you don't know me my name is Russell Horner I'm one of the pastors here at the church and it's my privilege this morning to be able to continue our journey through this incredible psalm psalm 119 I just want to take a second to welcome you if you're new this is the first time you've been to sovereign grace welcome we're glad you're here thankful that you've joined us today okay let's get into God's word psalm 119 Psalm 119, verses 105 to 112. We are now in the 14th stanza. It probably says the noon stanza at the top of this section. Remember, that's the Hebrew letter that begins each verse. Since this is an alphabetic acrostic, it's a way to help memorize this whole psalm. And as we've seen, we're already halfway through. This is worth memorizing, isn't it? So worth meditating on every single week because it reminds us of the glory and sufficiency of God's word. So let's hear from the word of the Lord together. Psalm 119, verses 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, But I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Let me pray. Father, what an incredible gift your word is to us. I'm so thankful that we get to meditate on it, to be confronted by it to be challenged by it each and every week. I pray, Father, that as we dive into your word, that your spirit would soften our hearts. That this is not just about exchanging information or about being interested or entertained, but this is about transforming us by the power of the spirit working through your word. Pray that we would not leave this place the same as when we came in because we have heard from you loud and clear through your word. Thankful for the means you use. Pray that you would empower me and my words, that you would use us to be attentive listeners so that we might attend to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So it's July, just halfway over through the year 2021, and I'm wondering how all of you are doing on your New Year's resolutions. Probably the last thing you thought to be hearing this morning, right? Have you thought about those since January? I'm curious, though, has anyone kept their New Year's resolution this year? I didn't make one. That's probably what happened, right? It's one person really. Has anybody kept a New Year's resolution ever? It's <laughs> still one person. There we go. Same person. Oh, wow. We need to talk later. I'm I'm amazed at that. And it better not be like cheating, you know, I will gain weight this year or something. Like that kind of resolution, those don't count. So, I'm fascinated. Fascinated by this practice we have in our culture to make New Year's resolutions. Some people feel completely obligated year after year to make these commitments, to make these promises, knowing that in a few days, months, maybe maybe a couple weeks, it might last and it just kind of falls apart, right? And then what do we do the next year? We do it all over again. We make New Year's resolutions once again. You know that's crazy, right? To do something, expect something different. That's the literal definition of crazy. I'm sure some of us have learned, like Jen mentioned, that it's just not worth our time. We don't make New Year's resolutions because they always end the same. In a couple weeks, the exercise equipment that we bought goes on sale, the gyms free up, the books we buy or the things we buy just end up collecting dust on our shelves. No matter what we do, it seems like these resolutions just always fall apart. Now, I know that New Year's resolutions are somewhat of a joke and they're lighthearted, but I think also they're a symptom of something more, too. It's almost as if we live in a world where people are comfortable with breaking promises, We live in a world where people are okay with making commitments. They really have no intention to fight very hard to keep. Sadly, I believe that's exactly the world we live in, isn't it? Where politicians will promise the world, will make any promise they can to gain the vote. And as soon as they're in the office, what do they do? They turn around and break those promises. We think the next guy is going to be different. The next one's going to be different. And it's the same thing. And we see the divorce rate is still skyrocketing. Couples stand before each other on their wedding day to make vows, and I'm sure they're sincere. I'm sure they're in love, and they really do mean those vows, but there's very little desire, maybe even no desire, to fight to keep those vows no matter what. They're based entirely on circumstances or feelings, and as soon as those circumstances or feelings change, they bail. They're done, because those vows to them were just as useless as a New Year's resolution. I'm so thankful that we see so many exceptions to this, especially in the church. So thankful yesterday to be at the voil wedding and to see them take their vows so seriously. May God give them grace to walk in faithfulness for years. I've been so encouraged by many of you who have kept your vows faithfully for decades now. And you know that should be the case because Christians should be the ones who can keep their vows, who can keep their promises. Not because we're more righteous or more holy, or just more dependable than other people, but because our vows, our commitments, our resolutions are not grounded in our circumstances. They're not grounded in the world around us, where truth is determined by a majority vote, or the latest opinion polls, or where circumstances change in a heartbeat. Just look at last year with COVID, how quickly things can change. Our vows are not even really based on us, in our sinful, fallen hearts or our feeble understanding of the world around us. As Christians, as God's children, our vows, our promises are grounded in the God that never changes, and in his perfect, immutable word. And that's what David wants to remind us of this morning. This section in the psalm, this stanza has a unique place in this whole psalm because after two stanzas glorifying God's word by its sufficiency and its glory, David turns once again to his afflictions, but this time it's strange. He doesn't turn back to his afflictions to lament. He did that a few stanzas back. He doesn't turn back to his afflictions to lament. He turns back to them to make a vow of faithfulness to God. And We think, well, that doesn't make sense. How could you look at the mess of your life in affliction and say, you know what? I'm going to keep God's word. I'm going to make it to thee, and I will be faithful. How can David do that? Well, because even though David's eyes are focused on his affliction, his heart and his mind are grounded in the last two stanzas, that God's word is fixed and sure, and that God gives wisdom to his people through his word. He's sure of God's word, and the confidence in God's word gives him godly determination to keep it. And so this stanza, we see this repeating pattern. It's almost every other verse. Well, David says something glorious about God's word, and then he follows it up with, therefore, I'm going to do this. In other words, he says, this is the reality. Lord, your word is this. And he says, therefore, I resolve, I commit myself to doing this. He goes from reality to resolution, reality to resolution over and over and over again. And so I wanna point out as we walk through this, three realities in this text that David draws to light here. And the first one is God's word is our light. God's word is our light in verses 105 and 106. The second is God's word is our life, our life, verses 107 to 110. And then lastly, God's word is our heritage, the last two verses, 111 and 112. And in light of all these realities, David continues to make these resolutions, but his resolution really is the same every time. It's nuanced, but he's committing himself. He's resolved to keep God's word to the end. He comes back to that over and over and over again in light of these realities. And so let's look at the first reality in verse 105, where God's word is our light. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This might be one of the most famous verses in this entire psalm, isn't it? one that almost everybody recognizes because this picture of a lamp and a light is so relatable to us. Every single one of us has been in situations where we find ourselves in sudden darkness and realize just how dependent we are on light, don't we? I'm sure we've had power outages. We have a lot more of those lately, but we've had power outages where we're scrambling for a light or, or a phone or something. Or maybe you've gone camping and at four in the morning your kid wants to go to the bathroom and you're trying to find a flashlight to guide your way. Every single one of us, have had situations where we need the light, even down to the smallest child who wants the night light to sleep. Every one of us, every one of us at one point or another realizes we're dependent on light to do pretty much anything. And so David is drawing out that picture, that metaphor. He's saying, you know how dependent you are on light? You need to be even more dependent on God's word because God's word works like the light in different ways. In what way, specifically? Well, first of all, God's word lights the way of holiness. God's word lights the way of holiness for us. And even though this verse is really well known, I think we miss this aspect of this verse, 105. Because look, we read, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, we think, oh, This is guidance, this is God's word lighting up my next step. This is when I come to a fork in the road, God says take this road, not that road. We think this is all about general guidance. We have to be very careful with this and not to turn God's word into kind of a magic eight ball where we just ask a question, shake it up, or flip pages and boom, there's our answer. That's not what this book's intended to be. In fact, we do this so often, we search the scriptures and think, well, who should I marry? Where should my kids go to school? What state should I live in? What job should I take? And as Jason taught us last week, God does give wisdom that helps us decide on those things, but the Bible doesn't answer those kinds of questions for it, does it? In fact, the Bible doesn't answer most of our questions, and that's actually a really good thing because even though the Bible doesn't answer every question we have, it does answer every question we really need. And so this is not general guidance here. This is very specific guidance. Well, what kind of guidance? Read the next verse, 106. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it. To do what? To keep your righteous rules. That's the guidance that David's asking for. Lord, light the way on the path of righteousness, on the path of holiness. It's not the path of success or comfort or worldly wisdom. It's not the path that leads just to a better marriage or to more godly kids or to a comfortable retirement. David's saying, no, let your word be a lamp to my feet and a light to my path of holiness, of covenant faithfulness, of righteous living. Oh, and we desperately need this, don't we? We desperately need God's word to light the way of holiness because to our sinful, fallen hearts, the way of holiness often looks like the wrong way. It often feels like the wrong way to go in our minds. I mean, just think about it. When somebody sins against us, All of our instincts, what do we wanna do? We wanna get back, we wanna get even. We want them to beg for forgiveness, to do some sort of penance and do something that we make sure they really feel what they've done. But God's word says, forgive. Forgive 70 times seven if necessary. Forgive as you have been forgiven. If we're in a tough marriage or a tough relationship, what's our first instinct? Run, get out of here. My life would be so much easier, so much better if this person wasn't in my life. We can even spiritualize it at times and think, well, God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy here. I would be so much happier if I just left, if I didn't have them dragging me down. But God's word says, no, the path of holiness is to endure hardship. Over and over again, God's word says, love, even if you're not going to get anything in return. Love when it's costly, because that's the way that God's loved us. At times, everything in us wants to cry out against God's word because it's not our instinct. It's not the way we feel it should be done. I believe it or not, this actually reminded me of the time I went whitewater rafting down the Nile River. I know it sounds like a stretch, but hang with me. I promise it'll make sense. In high school, Chad was actually my youth pastor. If you didn't know that, Chad was my youth pastor. My senior year, we went on a mission trip to Africa. And near the end of the trip, we actually had the chance to raft down the Nile River. Now, I'd rafted the mighty Kern, so I was feeling pretty confident, and I thought this would be a piece of cake. I had no idea. 10 times worse. This was class five rapids. There was one 14-foot wall of water. This was a death trap that our pastor sent us down. So, but we survived, no one lost their lives. <laughs> we should have figured this out, though, because during the training, this stands out to me so clearly, during the training, our guides said, look, if you get pulled under, and you're stuck in a rapid, don't swim. Don't swim, because you'll be tossed all over the place. You won't know which way's up. You'll swim sideways, you'll swim down, but you may not know which way's up, and you're gonna just exhaust the oxygen that you have. You have to hold onto your vest, hold your breath, and I added pray, and then eventually you'll pop up. It might be like 60 seconds or so. And I thought, there is no way you could not know which way's up. How is, that's not possible. And sure enough, the second rapid in I got pulled under, right when we went in, and I got spun around, and I literally didn't know which way was up. Didn't have any clue, and everything in me said, you need to breathe, swim, and I thought about it, and I just, I held onto my life vest, and I literally prayed, I remember. It felt like an eternity, but after about a minute, I popped up, I was about 50 yards away from the person I was sitting next to on the boat, and it was shocking, and I think about that moment, and I don't know what would have happened if I trusted my instincts. I'm not sure how bad it would have been if I tried to swim. But by trusting in my life jacket against my instincts, I was saved. We need to trust God's word like that. We can't trust the world around us. It's covered in darkness. We can't trust our own instincts. As Mikey read earlier, our hearts are deceitful. They're desperately wicked. No one is righteous. No, not one. We have to trust the light of God's word. It alone illumines the path of holiness. It alone lights the path for our feet so that we can take the next step of holy obedience. David acknowledges that. He acknowledges that reality. And in light of that reality, look what he does. Verse 106, he makes a resolution. I've sworn an oath. I've made a public commitment, a vow, a resolution. And I've confirmed it. I'm committed to this. There's no turning back. To do what? To keep your righteous rules. So David says, your word lights the path of righteousness. I will walk in the light. That's what David says. That's his oath. Now, we're not usually comfortable or just used to this practice in the Old Testament of making oaths or taking vows. But this is all over the Old Testament. In fact, there are many times where God comes to his people and says, you're going to vow to be faithful to me. You're going to bear my name, take my name upon yourself, and I want you to covenant with me, vow that you will be faithful like a husband and a wife vow on their wedding day. And God takes this incredibly seriously. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse four says this. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. God takes these vows deadly seriously. Now maybe some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, hold on. Didn't Jesus just kind of end that on the Sermon on the Mount? When Jesus was talking about vows in Matthew 5, verse 34, he said, do not take an oath at all. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that is from evil. And so David is sinning here. He's taking a vow when he shouldn't be taking a vow. We need to understand something. In that passage on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not forbidding vows altogether. He's calling out the Pharisee for the sinful way they were making vows. These Pharisees were calling on random objects to make their vows so that the consequences wouldn't be so bad. They would say, look, I'm not gonna swear on the temple, but I'll swear on the gold in the temple or the precious stones. That way, if I break my vow, it's not as big a deal. Kind of sounds like a lawyer trying to find a loophole or something. Sorry, lawyers, I just realized, looking at Brett. <laughs> Hope you don't do this. They're exploiting something that shouldn't be exploited here. That's what they're doing here. They're making these vows. And Jesus is saying, look, don't throw out vows altogether, but simply do this. Let your everyday speech, your yes and your no, be taken just as seriously as your vows. David knows this. He knows how God treats vows, and yet he says, I will keep your righteous rules. I don't know how many of you look at that and say, that is crazy. I could never say that. It almost sounds as if David's being arrogant here. He's being just basically saying, Lord, I'm going to keep your rules forever. I'm not going to sin anymore. I've got this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, your word is laying out the path of holiness for me, and I'm going to keep it. I may stumble. I may start to drift. But, Lord, I will return to your path. Time and time again, I will follow your word. I'm committed to your word. It's not David saying, I've got this. I'm strong enough to handle this. It's David saying, I think with Paul in Philippians 2, I will work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in me, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How does David do this? Is uh, he so dependent on God's grace here. Is that really what's going on? Well, let's look at the second point and we'll see how David is dependent on God's grace to do this incredible vow. So we've seen how God's word is our light. Let's look at God's word is our life. Verse 107. David says, I am severely afflicted. I'm suffering terribly. I've been brought exceedingly low, as other translations say. David's saying, my life is about as bad as it can get. Does that sound arrogant? Does that sound even like a confident man who can say, yep, I'm gonna keep those laws? No, it sounds like the man who's falling apart, the man who's lost hope, he's at the end of his rope. Where does the confidence come from? We'll keep reading. I'm severely afflicted, verse 107. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. That's where David grounds his hope, in the God that gives life. And the God that always has, as his word says. God breathed life into us from the very beginning. And even after the fall, when the world was still crumbling, he drew near to Adam and Eve and promised that the seed would come to end this, to crush Satan, sin, and death, and bring life. This is the God that drew near to covenant with Noah, Abraham, and Moses, even when they were far from him. They were rebelling against him. God drew near and freed them from their sin. This is the God who freed Israel from Egypt, who saved them time and time again from every mess they got themselves into. This is the God who says in Exodus 34, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the God that David finds his vow in. He rests in that God, the God that gives life, because he realizes that God's word doesn't just light the way to holiness. God's word lights the way to salvation. It lights the way to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And David is begging for that, begging for the reality that God didn't abandon us in our sin and darkness. But as his word promised, he sent his son, his very son, into our darkness, into the sin of this world, to live the life that we failed to live, to go to the cross, to take the darkness of this world, the sin and the wrath of God because of that darkness upon himself, to pay that penalty at the cross, and then raise from the dead to bring life to his children, to bring eternal life. Wiping away that darkness, cleansing our unrighteous hearts so that we can be forgiven, declared righteous, adopted into the family of God forever in Christ Jesus. As Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's David's confidence. It's the grace that comes through Jesus. It's the life that comes through the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only way to the Father. The one who says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness but will have light of life. That's where David's confidence is. And he knows even if his world is dark, even if afflictions are terrible, he can still have hope because his hope is in the living word, Jesus Christ. Who is his life? And so, how does David respond to this reality of God giving life to his people? Look at verse 108. He gives a resolution. He says, Accept my free will offering of praise, O Lord. You're probably thinking, Well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a resolution. That doesn't sound as serious of a commitment. It kind of sounds like he's just worshiping. A free will offering is actually the language from Leviticus. These free will offerings were voluntary. They were unforced. They weren't basically done for any kind of sin. They were just done out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving. So David's just offering up what it says a free will offering of praise here. But actually, I'm not a big fan of this translation. I think it's a little misleading. I think what it should say there in light of the Hebrew is that he's offering up an offering of the lips, of the mouth. Because what David is referring back to here is that vow in 106. He's saying that vow, that's my offering, to give myself to your laws forever. Essentially what David is saying is what Paul says in Romans 12. I offer my life as a living sacrifice. Lord, my life is yours. You gave it to me. I lay it down for you. That's what David's saying here. I gladly lay it down to be conformed to your laws. And look at this. I love this response. I'm gonna do this great thing. I'm gonna lay down my life for you, Lord, but teach me. Teach me your rules. I've lost track of the amount of times he said, teach me. He begs for it constantly. And this is continued begging for more grace. This is David saying, look, it's been grace from the beginning. It's going to be grace to the end. It was your grace that gave me your word. It's your grace that illumined the path of holiness for me through your word. It's your grace that enabled this vow that brought me to this point to have confidence to make this vow. And Lord, I can't do this vow unless you continue to give me grace, unless you walk with me every step of the way, unless you teach me. It reminds me of John Newton's great hymn, The Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. It was grace that brought us safe thus far and grace will lead me home. David is confident in this grace. He's building his resolutions on this grace and this life given to him, and it overshadows his afflictions completely. Look at verse 109. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. This is an idiom, it's a cultural saying, but it's a saying we still have. If someone goes bungee jumping or or skydiving, someone might say, look, you're taking your life into your hand there, brother. You're taking your life in your hand. You might lose it all here. That's what David's saying. He's taking his life into his hand. He's risking his life here. By doing what? Look at verse 110. The wicked have laid a snare for me, a trap for me. Well, where did they lay that snare? Well, he just said, I do not forget your law. What's happening here is the wicked are laying traps along the path of holiness. The wicked are trying to cause David to stumble, to abandon the vow that he made, to disobey God, to turn from God. They're setting these traps for him, trying to throw him off. And then look what David says at the end of verse 110. But I do not stray from your precepts. David was taking his life into his hand by walking in the light, by walking the path of holiness. He knew that if he really committed to these vows, it wouldn't make afflictions go away. It might make afflictions increase because the wicked put a target on his back to take him down. Isn't this the way it works in our world too? Being faithful to God in this world is costly. It's growing more and more costly every single day, isn't it? Just by trusting the Lord, by walking in holiness, by preaching the gospel, we might lose our financial security, we might lose friendships, we might lose jobs, and in certain places of the world, and maybe even one day here, we could lose our lives. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. God's word reminds us of this, 2 Timothy 3:12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Obedience is costly. So my question to you, my question to us, is are we paying the cost for obedience? I know this sounds really strange, but is there enough affliction in your life? Affliction from following God? Or have you avoided affliction? Avoided conflict? Become comfortable? even built up a good reputation simply from being unfaithful, for not walking in the light, for not preaching the gospel to those that need it, for not speaking the truth in love. Jesus warns against this, doesn't he? Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. Each of us needs to honestly ask ourselves this morning, is my lack of affliction The result of disobedience? Am I comfortable because I've been unfaithful? If you have, I have good news. You still have the God that gives you life. You have the God that gives you light for holiness, the God that saved David. And we can, with David, vow to never forget your law from this day forward, to not stray from your precepts, to lay down the very life that God gave you as an offering to him. So we've looked at David's resolutions in light of the two realities. God's word is our light, and God's word is our life. Let's look at the third reality. God's word is our heritage. Our heritage, verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage, or my inheritance, forever. Now, you might not notice this on the first read, but this is actually David showing us what the end of the path of holiness looks like. David uses this word, heritage, or inheritance here. And this word is all over the Old Testament. But the strange thing is, is almost every time when this word is used in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to the promised land. So Jews would read this and think, what? Inheritance? That's the promised land, right? There are times where it refers to God himself being the heritage, and eventually it seems to really, really point to the promised land as our heavenly dwelling. But the initial reaction when we read heritage should be, well, this is the promised land. This is my home. This is the place of rest. So why does David here say the word of God is our heritage? Why is the word the heritage? Well, what David is saying here is that this book is the guarantee that I'm gonna make it home, that I'm gonna make it to the promised land, that I'm gonna make it to my heavenly celestial city. This book is like the deed, the title to my heavenly home, that's been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. It reminds me of that hope. I know it can't be lost. It's mine forever. It's been passed down from generation to generation as this eternal inheritance to remind us where we're headed. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And listen, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. This book is the reminder that we're gonna make it home safe and sound and looking just like Jesus. By God's sovereign hand, it's been passed down through the blood, sweat, and tears of many saints to remind us that this is our life, our light, and our heritage. And in light of that reality, look at what David does. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Isn't that beautiful? He thinks about where he's headed. He thinks about the path ahead of him, even though his afflictions are all around him still. And he's filled with joy because he knows he has an inheritance that can't be touched. And because of this joy, because of this reality, he goes right back to a resolution. Right back to a vow. Look at verse 112. I incline my heart, I devote my heart to perform your statutes forever. And just in case you didn't get forever, to the end. (laughs) I love that. He just repeats himself forever, forever. Did you notice David, he ends right where he starts, doesn't he? Verse 106, I've sworn an oath. I've confirmed it to do what? To keep your righteous rules. Verse 112, I incline my heart to perform what? Your statutes forever. Your righteous rules to the end. Because God's word is his light and his life and his heritage out of the fullness of joy he gets by meditating on God's word and how God's worked through his word to save him and sustain him. He says, I'm going to make it, not because of me, but because of the God who works through his word on into eternity. I'm not sure how many of you recognize this book. You might not even be able to see it from way back there. This is in our office. It's been in our office for quite a bit of time now, and this book, in case you don't know, is the translation of the New Testament done by Brooks Buser and his team a while ago now. We've talked about Brooks many times. We've prayed for him. He's come and spoke here. He's working at Radius, we're thankful for his ministry. And many of you might even recognize him or this book from the video we show in membership. When we, we show people what Brooks did, and his team did, to live among the people of the MBMB tribe, to learn their culture and language, to teach them to read, to translate the Bible, and then to teach them God's story, teach them the gospel from this Bible. And at the end of that video, there's this ceremony, this celebration, when they take this book and they give it to the people of the MBMB tribe. And it's unforgettable when you see it. Brooks actually stands up and he says this, this Bible is important. But what's more important is what you do with it. As the church, the body of Christ, the Bible is here to help believers grow, grow in holiness. It will guide you even now as we leave. That's a promise you can hold on to forever. And one of the men stand up in the tribe and he prays this. He says, God, I want to thank you. It's been a long time. Almost 2,000 years that we, the Yembi Yembi Church, have waited for the translation of your word in our very own language. I am so happy and grateful. And the video ends with a man holding up this Bible, and he has the biggest smile I've ever seen on his face. It's unforgettable. These people were delighted, overjoyed to have God's word. Why? Because they remember what it was like to live in darkness. For 2,000 years to have no light For their path and no light for their feet. To be lost without God, without hope in this world, they saw the struggle of the missionaries to come and translate this, to give the Bible to them. And when they finally read it, they realized how desperately they needed it to see Jesus, to find their faith in him, and to trust him all the way home. Sometimes I think we forget what a treasure this book is. I think we forget what a miracle it is we have in our language, that we can pull it up on our phone any second of the day, that we get to hear it preached week by week without worrying that someone's gonna break in and kill us, that we can have it anytime we want, and I think we forget what it would be like to live in darkness, especially if we grew up in the church, to have no hope, no light, no life, no heritage for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, let us never take this book for granted. It is our light, our life, and our heritage. And let us, with David, vow to keep it to the end. Let's pray. Father, we know that doesn't happen without you. It doesn't happen without you saving us to begin with. And it will definitely not happen if you don't sustain us to the end. So God, use your word as the tool to give us light and life. Help us to look to Jesus in faith through what your word teaches us. And may it remind us of our eternal inheritance in him that can never be lost. Let it give us hope and peace and strength to fight the battle that we have with sin, to help each other wage war against sin, the flesh, and the devil, so that we can make it home and worship you for all of eternity. We're thankful, Father, that you in your wisdom and sovereign hand have given us your word. Pray that we would keep it to the end. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.